If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer, if you are a pretender, come, sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in. Come in. Hello and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that broadcasts about things that were fun. <laughs> the movies, the music, the books, the TV. Some that we paid for, some stolen, some free. Revisit your childhood with Seth, Becky, and Chris. Learn which bits are still bliss and which hits are amiss. <laughs> we take second looks through a critical lens to mock, jeer, and berate the tastes of our friends. Your favorite pop single, we ripped it to shreds. Urkel Lambert's and Tanner's now off with their heads. <laughs> 99 promcoms, hit, sunk, destroyed. Drug-drenched misery porn? Well, that we enjoyed. <laughs> Trip down memory lane with Chris, Seth, and Becky. Learn which shows were good and which songs were yecky. <laughs> yecky? <laughs> we break them down, shake them down, take them apart. Unless it's Twister, because that one's fine art. <laughs> King of world, queen of pop, princess peach, Belair prince. We'll prod and we'll poke and we'll see if they flinch. The Adamses, Brady's, Simpsons, McFly's. None are safe from our rancor, except Seinfeld. Surprise. <laughs> Does Labyrinth hold up, or is it just Bowie's codpiece? How about Romy and Thelma, Tracy Flick and Clarice? Did Dante <laughs> peak in the 90s? Is Ryan still worth a save? Is Mary something still there? Is that blonde still a babe? Do we now doubt, no doubt, and doubt, doubt, fire too? Is in and out, in or out? Is the Moulin still rouge? Is Lebowski still big? Can Jim Carrey the mask? Is Gremlins 2 any good? Or should we bother to ask? Can we talk about Fight Club now it's two decades past? Can we talk about Ally Mc... What? You say pass? <laughs> Is Scully still spooky? Stephen King still it? Is Macarena still music? Or do we now call that shit? <laughs> Nick at night or in daytime? 90s Disney or classic? American Pie Beauty or Tail? Dino's Bluth or Jurassic? <laughs> Do scary stories give goosebumps? Was the right thing did? Are those babies in danger? Is ladybugs for kids? <laughs> yes, we ask the toughest questions, these three sharp minds combined. Like, is Nirvana's album still? Uh, whatever, never mind. <laughs> Racist, sexist, homophobic, we'll uncover every link. But what we really want to know is, what did Rita think? <laughs> Oh my God. Roses, roses. <laughs> we have to quit now. <laughs> I'm getting that tattooed on my back. <laughs> okay, good luck with the full body sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> That's the greatest thing you've ever written. <laughs> this is better than the show. <laughs> we can't have an episode after this. That's the pinnacle. No, goodbye, everyone. We've peaked. <laughs> I am Christopher Cynthia Sylvia Stout. <laughs> the podcast host least likely to take the garbage out. I'm Becky, <laughs> the podcast host most likely to be the most perfect contraption that's ever been seen. I'm Seth, the host most likely to be the first child to ever die from not getting a pony. And I'm Alyssa, the guest most likely to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait for it to rain. <laughs> Living in LA, we can sympathize. <laughs> right. So if you can't tell from our very rhyming and uh, goofy introductions there, um, today we are celebrating a very well-known and well-loved personality from our childhoods, as well as other generations of childhoods, both before and after ours. 
He is a poet and author, a singer and songwriter, a journalist and cartoonist and illustrator, a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer, <laughs> and very much a pretender, Shel Silverstein. So today we're going to look at poems from three of Silverstein's widely read books of poetry, Where the Sidewalk Ends, A Light in the Attic, and Falling Up, and his acclaimed short story, The Giving Tree. If you're anything like me, this episode is sure to beat you over the head with nostalgia for your early to mid <laughs> elementary school years. And hopefully that's a good thing. So come sit by our fire, for we have some golden flax tails to spin. Come in. Jump it back in the DeLorean, a Saturday morning, and we both be cynical or radical. But was it good because we were young? Was it good because we were dumb? Do we think it suddenly sucked? Now we're jaded and all grown up, and there was so much that we loved. Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a fantasy? We have a guest with us today, in case you noticed a non-Becky, Chris, or Seth voice chiming in there. This is a person I ate grilled cheese with once in New York about 18 years ago. <laughs> so he says. <laughs> she does not remember the grilled cheese, but she said she does remember me. So I'm, I'm just glad that I've outdone cheese and bread for once in my life. <laughs> that is not why she was our guest. I don't just invite every person I've randomly ate a meal with once years ago. I rank second in personal connections with this guest. So Becky, would you care to <laughs> chime in on just who this guest is? Yes. Alyssa is one of my closest friends since we were both freshmen. Wait, first of all, I should say your name. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, someone should say her name at some yeah. point, please. You're keeping it very mysterious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're not actually planning to let you speak at yeah. any point. Our guest, Jane Doe. <laughs> <laughs> Can you do one of those voice changers on me, too? <laughs> like I'm Banksy. I'm a children's book author. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, our mystery guest today is Banksy. <laughs> Yes, welcome to the podcast, children's book author, Alyssa Brent Weissman. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, thank you for having me. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining us all the way from New Zealand, because you live in New Zealand now. Yes, I do. Uh, my family and I moved from Baltimore to Christchurch, New Zealand uh, about two years ago. How's uh, how's not worrying about COVID going? <laughs> it's really nice. <laughs> Great, I'm sorry. What's it like being in a civilized country? That's got to be weird. Yeah, we definitely, um, we don't know how we got so lucky in our the timing and location of our move. I swear I did not know about this pandemic ahead of time. Yeah, that would be really rude if you didn't warn anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the word traveled fast through the children's author community and then y'all all got out of town. Right. We're all here now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sharing one bunker. <laughs> Well, I did ask you years ago, why are you moving to New Zealand? And you said, no reason. <laughs> did she say it like that? Maybe. <laughs> it's very mysterious. <laughs> so me and Alyssa go way back. We've been friends ever since we were in freshman drama together in high school. And I had a few hours to kill before rehearsal. And I was hungry. And she lived nearby. And I said, can I come over to your house and eat something? <laughs> I think that was how it went. And then we ate muffins. We did. We ate muffins together at her house, and a friendship was born. It's true. <laughs> no, it wasn't grilled cheese. <laughs> I was going to say, these are very food-based memories, it's although true. apparently the muffins were more memorable than the grilled cheese. I, I think we have more than food-related memories together. 
We have lots of related memories. <laughs> we were scribes together in drama, which I don't even know what that really means. Did we take notes for meetings? Like, what did we do? <laughs> I think we. She was great at it. We. <laughs> that's right. Clearly, I did all of it, but we um, counted the hours because people had to do a certain number of hours right. of work, and it was our job to count them. <laughs> Is that all we did? <laughs> Pretty much. Is that our job? That was our job. We had to get elected to do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are your qualifications that they elect you over someone else? In the theme of today's episode of this podcast, I wrote my speech when I was running to become a scribe. I wrote it in rhyme. <gasps> That's right. I do remember Amazing. that. Amazing. Yes. Do you have it with us today? <laughs> and you have it right here to share with us. Oh, I wish I did. <laughs> And then we were in many plays together. I was president of choir the same year she was president of drama. So we were El Presidente's together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've known each other ever since. And she's lived on this side of the country. I've lived on the other, like back and forth. But we always have stayed in touch. So it's so nice to have you on the podcast. And you were, I believe voted most likely to succeed in our class. Oh, it's so much pressure. (laughs) Well, I I think you did it (laughs) because you're a children's book author and you have so many books and you have a new book out. Can you tell us about your new book? Sure. Um, Yeah. So I write novels for eight to 12 year olds. And my new book that just came out August 10th is called The Renegade Reporters. And it's about a group of sixth graders in Baltimore City who get kicked off their school news TV show. And so they start their own news TV show on their own that they post on YouTube. And they uncover a really big digital privacy scandal involving the software company that makes all their school software and sponsors their school news show. Love it. That's awesome. Yeah. I absolutely love that. <laughs> That's so interesting because I, I wrote out a couple of questions that I was just curious to get your take on um, as a children's book author. And um, this was technically my last question, but I'm going to ask it first because it sounds so relevant to what you just um, shared about the plot. But I was just wondering, is there anything different about writing for kids like today that might not have been true like when we were young? Like, for example, as a screenwriter, it's really hard to incorporate technology into a screenplay because it's kind of boring to like watch people type in a movie, you know, so you have to find, get creative about how you're yeah. going to, you know, show things like that. So I don't know if is it, and obviously you thought a lot about like today's world, you know, because like that plot wouldn't have made any sense, you know. Um, it's true. The and there's always, there's always the risk. I wonder, I'm sure it's probably the same in screenwriting too, that it takes so long to write a book and then to publish a book that if you do include technology, it could be out really outdated by the time the final product is out in the world. Yes. <laughs> so in general, I've always tried to like avoid technology to some degree or in my mm-hmm. in my books. And that's nice writing for the age group I write for and having characters who are like 10, 11, 12 years old, because until relatively recently, you could kind of get away with them not having phones and stuff. Mm. But then at some point it's gotten to where now it's weird if you don't have technology in the story because it's such a huge Mm. part of everybody's life and even kids that age, especially in the US. So yeah, so kind of tried to, I guess, really embrace that aspect of it for this book and look into them. You know, yeah, it's about kids who are like making a TV show on their phones and putting it out there for the world to see. So that is something that I wouldn't have ever thought I'd be like writing a story like that even, you know, five years ago, maybe. Yeah. Guys, my kid is two years old and she knows which phone is mine, which phone is my husband's, and how to take pictures on them. (laughs) 
The yeah, world has watch changed. Out. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> She'll be broadcasting in a year or two. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you say that about things being outdated, because I've run into that too. But I mean, especially when you're writing for kids, you know, kids are some of the first people who are like on the cutting edge of especially like technology. So you probably have to watch that especially closely. Yeah, I mean, I again, like, it would be nice for me if like, I could just I mean, technology in some ways makes I'm sure you probably find this too. Like it makes writing stories harder because so much of a good story depends on like people not knowing information Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. nowadays, like everybody knows everything instantly and we can communicate with each other anywhere at any time. So in some ways it makes it more difficult to like make, to add suspense or to have a plot that you want to have. Yeah. So it's an interesting like challenge for writers. I think the technology question, even when, when writing for kids. But I also imagine it makes it a really, like, rich vein to tap because, you know, it's like, in one sense, sure, you know, 8 eight to 12-year-old kids, like, know how to use this technology that allows them to learn anything instantly. But they all, they all still know almost nothing <laughs> about the actual, like, ways of the world and, you know, the, the things about, like, emotional intelligence and, like, communication and relationships that adults just know inherently. So in a way I can, I could definitely see it like making it a, a more interesting thing to like be able to write about a subject like this nowadays where they do have access to this technology and they do know how to access it and like dealing with like what it means when they like learn these things for the first time. Yeah. I mean, that's what I love about, about kids that age. And then also just writing for kids that age mm-hmm. um, and writing that age characters because they're learning and growing and developing in so many ways and really starting to think about things deeply and come into like who they are as individuals. And that's just a really big part of middle grade books. So that's really fun to explore in all sorts of different ways. I wanted to know, like, what drew you to this age range? I admit you may have already answered this question right now, but like when you first were like, I want to be an author, like what drew you to, what did you call it? Like middle age range? Middle grade is what it's middle called. Grade? Yeah. What drew me to it was that that first time that I was like, I want to be an author is when I was that age. When I, it was oh. books that I read when I was like, you know, nine, 10, 11, that just made me really fall in love with reading and made me get really fired up about writing. And I used to just write Becky, you were a big writer too, and, and mm-hmm. you're still a writer. Um, and I just was, from the time I was in, I think I was in third grade when I said, I'm going to be a children's author. <laughs> and I just wow. was, was filling like notebook after notebook with stories. I wrote a book that I tried unsuccessfully to get published when I was in fifth grade. And I just kind of kept going. <laughs> and so I think part of me just like, I'm secretly still 11 years old inside. I can just connect with what it's like to be that age really well. When I was in college um, and I was studying creative writing and I would turn in stories that I thought were for adults and everyone in my class would be like, kids would love this. So (laughs) apparently I'm much better at it than I am at writing for any other age group. So yeah, I don't know why, but I can just kind of get to that place mentally and in my imagination really easily. And so it's just a natural fit for me. That's awesome. Were there any specific books from your childhood that either you kind of model your work on or that inspired like kind of the subjects that you write about or anything about your writing? There were so many. Just to name a a couple, when I was a kid myself, I was really, really inspired by the author Gordon Corman. I loved his books because they were like funny school stories, which is pretty much what I write today. But also I knew that he published his first book when he was 13. Oh, wow. And I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. 
And I actually wanted to beat him and try to get published like before my bat mitzvah. That was my goal, but <laughs> it didn't end up happening. <laughs> I, I know that goal. I, I was like, I'm going to make a movie before I'm 26. So I beat, you know, Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of ambitions there. <laughs> um, yeah. I was a huge Babysitter's Club fan. Um, and I also really loved Lewis Sacker, who wrote the Wayside School Books. Yeah. Um, maybe a good one for this show another time in the future. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. Um, and a lot of other good stuff besides Wayside School. Um, yeah. So I could go on and on. But and shall I segue? I'll say also Shel Silverstein. <laughs> what a coincidence. That's the person we're talking about today. <laughs> and and I was curious, uh, do you do you write poetry as well? Do you write in other like in other mediums? Do you create like other things? I I don't really write poetry. I'm not a very good well actually I'm I'm good at like rhyming, but mm-hmm. um, I'm um not you a have good you poet. wrote a rhyme in my yearbook. Oh, did I? <laughs> Oh, you did. She said it here today. (laughs) So she was published. Cross out my most likely to succeed when I did that. Um, (laughs) I, um, yeah, so I'm a pretty terrible poet, I think, like, apart from like, you know, I can rhyme well, but that's about it. Um, And I am not, I'm like very creative, but I'm not artistic at all. Like I can't draw or do anything like that. Um, but I do actually, I do have my, my debut picture book will come out in a couple years. So that's exciting. exciting. And what is that about? Can you tell us? Oh, it hasn't been like officially announced yet. So I don't know how much I'm supposed to reveal. Well, I'll draw a picture and you tell me if I'm close. (laughs) (laughs) Again, great for an audio podcast. (laughs) We won't describe the picture or anything. I'll just say yes or no. Yes. (laughs) I'll text it to her and she'll be like, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) It's just pictures of muffins and grilled cheeses. Exactly. (laughs) That is awesome. I love it. And one of your series is called Nerd Camp. And I love that you just embrace being a nerd and how that can be cool. And I know that you've done a lot of school visits with your book, Nerd Camp. And I just appreciate that you are unabashedly geeky. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And as people who are incredibly cool and serious all the time, we really appreciate (laughs) you're giving some representation to those people. Right. Yeah. The Nerd Camp series has done really well. And actually, the first Nerd Camp book came out in 2011. So 10 years ago, which is crazy. And actually, as we were talking about how like things can change from the time you write something to the time it comes out. Now here, 10 years down the road, I think nerds have come a really long way. Like it's a lot cooler to be a nerd now than it was Mm -hmm. when that book came out. And I don't know that I had anything to do with that. But I do now hear from some kids like, well, why is Gabe, who's the main character, like, why is he embarrassed about being a nerd? Which Mm -hmm. is like really (laughs) cool to hear. I mean, it makes the whole like point of the book kind of moot, mm-hmm. but like, <laughs> is, if anything, I mean, it does kind of warm my heart a little to know that it's, it's moot for that reason. Yeah. Nerds get paid, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I think most people our age are familiar with Shel Silverstein from our childhood years. We know him primarily as a children's book author and poet whose books have been very widely read. Probably also know him as the illustrator of these books. What many may not know is that Shel Silverstein is an Academy Award nominee, as well as a Golden Globe nominee, 
a Grammy winner, a very prolific songwriter, and that many of his writings were distinctly not for children. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just going to get this out of the way right now (laughs) and play a song for you written and performed by this renowned award-winning children's book author. You got a letter from my folks and they say they're in debt. They say that things are as bad as they can possibly get. You know, I haven't answered that letter yet. I might use it to light my cigarette cause fuck them. What did they ever do for me anyway? Threw me out of the house when I was 29 years old Cut off my allowance Fuck em. Hey, woman come around and handed me a line About a lot of little orphan kids suffering and dying Shit, I give her a quarter cause one of them might be mine Yeah, the rest of those and keep right on crying I mean fuck kids throw up on your shoulder piss in your lap never give you nothing fuck them so that is a song called uh, fuck them written (laughs) and performed by Shel Silverstein I did not know he was a performer. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Yeah, he released quite a few songs, released a couple of albums, I think, even. Chris, is this from the 60s? Like, when is this from? Yeah, like the 60s or 70s was when he was doing most of his um, songwriting um, and performing. So this was an interesting episode to put together because there's a lot of <laughs> Shel Silverstein stuff from our childhood that brings up, you know, warm and fuzzy memories mostly. And then there's a side of him that we discovered, I think most of us when we were, you know, doing this podcast that I definitely was not aware of as a kid. And so it's like, how do you talk about the giving tree and fuck them at the same time? <laughs> and like, when, when, when you're talking about this beloved children's book author, do you mention... Fuck him and uh, his song, I Got Stoned and I Missed It. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like if we tried to do our episodes on Charlie Brown Christmas and Showgirls at the same time. <laughs> Ooh, good idea. I'm sad we didn't do that. There's always a chance to go back. And now I really want a Showgirls Christmas, but um, <laughs> it is not the right season for that. Um, did you guys have any, like, what did you guys feel when you, like, what, at whatever point you like realize that there was some um, adult material related to Shel Silverstein, did that surprise you or? Uh, no, no, it didn't surprise me at all. Oh, really? No. It surprised me. <laughs> Not to like step on our toes for when we're talking about our experience of Shel Silverstein growing up, but knowing what I knew from reading his stuff growing up, knowing his absurd and silly and sick sense of humor, none of this surprised me at all. And I mean, like beyond even just that, like looking at the author photo <laughs> <laughs> on any of Shel Silverstein's books will kind of clue you in that this guy was like not a straight. <laughs> laced button down non-bohemian personality <laughs> you know it's true the photo definitely looks like someone who would write a song called Fuck <laughs> yeah em. absolutely and i think we had a sense of that even as kids like i totally. remember seeing that photo on the back of his books and getting this you know that vibe <laughs> 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 that there was something not 
you know, that there was something more to him than uh, it, it was a mismatch with the, with the poems that you had just read. He's no Beverly Cleary. <laughs> well, I was surprised because I would assume that like a publishing house or whoever like would be like, we don't want the guy that wrote for Playboy <laughs> to write children's books or you have to change your name, you know, or you have to like brand yourself in a, in a certain way so that you are different mm-hmm. than this persona over here. This is your children's book persona. So I feel like in that respect, I'm surprised. I don't know. I mean, I wonder... I don't think back then, like before the internet, branding was such an important thing because people, right. it was probably much harder to discover other things that um, people had written or were doing than it is now or to discover the wrong thing if you're a child. Um, yeah, the kid would have to be looking through Playboy to discover that he was a Playboy writer. <laughs> and that's so. actually how Shel Silverstein was discovered by the legendary children's book editor, Ursula Nordstrom. She found him in Playboy. Um Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and I think a lot of the, um, very, well, I don't know a lot, but some very successful children's book authors also wrote very subversive adult material. Like Roald Dahl is Mm -hmm. another one who has some really, really, um, his adult fiction is extremely risque and he writes uh, adult fiction. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I literally did not know this. Well, and also, Becky, like to to add a bit to what Alyssa was saying, like, I feel like none of that pressure of branding, however branding existed as a concept back then, none of that pressure was put on the artists themselves. Like, that was the job of their agents or managers Mm. or PR people Mm -hmm. to do on their behalf. (laughs) You know, and it's like, I think to a large extent, it's kind of bullshit that authors are expected to do all that work for themselves now. But yeah, I don't find that surprising. Alyssa, is that something that you um, deal with at all today? I mean, I, I don't, I don't <laughs> guess that you would be, my... you know, that deep in your heart is this uh, expressive song called "Fuck 'Em" that you wish you could share but <laughs> just can't. Um, but is that something that like you ever run into or like have to like think twice about? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, because everyone can kind of find everything today. That I do mm-hmm. think about what I put out there and the image that. Um, I guess I try to project as a children's book author. Um, so yeah, more so than I think before, before all of internet and stuff existed. And I think if you see things now, like something like JK Rowling writing her adult, um, mystery series under a a pseudonym Mm -hmm. is, is like an instance of that, right? Like you wouldn't want avid Harry Potter fans to go finding and reading some of the Robert Galbraith books because they are really dark. and Or her Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Right. <laughs> she kind of undid her own brand there. But True. And, yeah. and I could also just as easily imagine, like, if Shel Silverstein were around now, like, he would have, like, a musical alter ego. Mm. You know, like, in the way that, like, Donald Glover is an actor and he has, like, Childish Gambino and that's, like, a musical alter ego moniker that's, like, mm. totally separate from his actor persona and his characters or that he plays. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, I guess. <laughs> like, <is that> something? <laughs> like, other people, yes, other people in fine art, Becky. Yes, like, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> Wait, Dwayne The Rock Johnson has a band? <laughs> Is that what you're trying to say? No, we're saying he's a very successful children's book author, Chris. <laughs> oh. He might be. There is he he would be. I mean, let's be honest. He would be if right. he got a book out there. Well, Alyssa, I look forward to your very adult erotica. That <laughs> You just have to find it. You just have to find the right name. Does it rhyme? <laughs> oh, scavenger hunt. <laughs> 
Her mama said, don't eat with your fingers. Okay, said Ridiculous Rose. So, she ate with her toes. <laughs> Sheldon Allen Silverstein was born in Chicago on September 25th, 1930. Happy 91st birthday this month, Shell. Um, even though you're no longer alive to celebrate. <laughs> if you were, I'm sure you'd be listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't he? It's all about him. Right? So that was during the Great Depression, his childhood. At that time, he began doodling to escape the difficult conditions his family faced, which I couldn't actually find much more information about. I don't think he was very forthcoming about his personal life. He kind of had a lot of barriers, I feel like. Like, he didn't like to give a ton of interviews or anything. Yeah, I am famous as a co-host of this podcast in not doing any homework, but I did look up a little bit just to try to get some biographical information. And it really does seem like he was uniquely, I don't know if closed off is the right word, but not forthcoming and, and not like super outgoing about his own biography. But that's okay. Yeah, especially for someone who like did write about himself like professionally, like that's some of what he did and inserted himself into some of his works, but then also like seemed to kind of draw a clear line between like that and his actual personal life. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying that in judgment. I'm just saying that because it's interesting because, you know, if anything, the pressure is more on authors to do the opposite now and to constantly share every detail of their own lives and biography. Do you feel that pressure, Alyssa? I think people think there's that pressure. Mm. Um, but I personally, like, I don't know, I guess I'm sort of a, a private person in that regard. And like, I got off social media entirely about two years ago. And along with moving to New Zealand around the same time, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that it like, it's just assumed that like, everybody thinks there, yes, there is that pressure. Like you're, you're told, like you have to be out there um, in order to succeed um, in any sort of public career nowadays. But I have not found that being off social media has hurt my career in any way. So, I mean, I think if other people are like, don't enjoy that facet of the job, then they should realize that like, it doesn't have to be a facet of the job. Well, that's good. That's really good to hear, actually. It's really encouraging. Yeah. I mean, when I took a step back, I was like, because I really, really didn't enjoy being on social media. And I, when I looked at it and I sort of said, you know, I feel like I've connected with a lot of authors and teachers and librarians and, and potential readers, but I felt like all of those connections remained online. Like I couldn't point to anything real world tangible to, that was beneficial from all of that effort. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't getting more school visits. I wasn't doing more events or speaking engagements. I wasn't like invited to more festivals. I don't even think I was selling more books, you know? Right. Like it just felt like I had to do this thing, but it wasn't really turning into rewards in the real world in like my actual career for doing it. Interesting. And I haven't seen like any decline since I stopped doing it. Weird. It's almost like all of that is just uncompensated labor to generate <laughs> clicks and ad revenue for companies that don't share any of it with us. <laughs> Huh. You had that ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say goodbye to you all. I'm done now. I wonder what, what the renegade reporters would think about that. <laughs> right? Welcome to Seth's Cynical Minute. There's always <laughs> one in every episode. You're lucky if we keep it to one minute. <laughs> well, I, I think Shel Silverstein would definitely approve of your approach to I think he media. had the right idea. I'm just going to say I'm following his footsteps now. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Shel Silverstein didn't really set out to be like a, well, anything in particular, I don't think. He would have rather been a baseball player, he said, or a ladies' man. I don't think he knew that that was not a technically a profession. Uh, this was the 60s. I believe it was at the time. <laughs> but he was ignored by girls, and he was not good at sports. So the closest he got to his baseball player dreams was selling hot dogs to White Sox fans at Comiskey Park. Mm-hmm. Silverstein attended three colleges and graduated from zero of them. <laughs> He was expelled from the University of Illinois, he dropped out of the Art Institute of Chicago, and he was drafted into the Korean War before he could finish his studies at Uh. Roosevelt University. While stationed abroad in Asia, he got his first cartoonist gig for the military publication Stars and Stripes, which led to his first published collection of cartoons called Take 10 in 1955. Then in 1956, Shel Silverstein walked into the offices of Playboy magazine and dropped off his portfolio, prompting Hugh Hefner to purchase several of his drawings. He became a regular contributor for Playboy. Uh, They dubbed him at various times their peerless prankster, wandering beard, and whiskered wit. He would travel the world and sketch his impressions of various cultures and exoticisms, and his travelogues became the magazine's second most popular feature, uh, after the centerfold, which was first, of course. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) It'd be pretty impressive if he outdid that. Behind the boobs. (laughs) He also reported on the sexual revolution and counterculture of the 60s, including his visit to a nudist camp on the East Coast and a romp around Fire Island's Cherry Grove, a gay beach resort community. This was kind of like unusual for the time that he, you know, would just kind of go to a gay beach resort and hang out and draw, you know, and like be sharing this with the audience of Playboy, who, you know, was (laughs) not the same audience. (laughs) It was, it's interesting. Like you can definitely see his humor, the drawings and the humor definitely sound like him, even though they're obviously aimed at a older audience. I thought it was interesting as like a curiosity. There's a part of me that thought like, you know, in in maybe a slightly later time, if that had been kind of his first entree into like the public consciousness, his career might have gone a very different way because I could easily see him being like Hunter S. Thompson, like renegade travel writer or something like that. I mean, I don't necessarily like think his writing was, was all that strong, but I totally agree with you, Chris, that like his his humor came through and his perspective even at that time was was pretty interesting i mean like especially for the time that it was and it was like he was going to places that were still relatively very exotic even talking about like fire island (laughs) Mm -hmm. that would be a kind of subject matter that would be very exotic especially to the audience of playboy in the 60s he had more collections of cartoons published and wrote some books that seemed like they were for kids but were actually not for kids that includes uncle shelby's kitty corner and uncle (laughs) shelby's abz book which feel a little bit like early prototypes for some of the stuff that he's better known for where it's like it's very crazy and sketched out but it's much more rough material and definitely like not targeting children directly. It's it's kind of in the style of children's writing, but mainly for adults. Well, and also some of the poems in there definitely end up being in like where the sidewalk ends and light in the attic. Like they, they show up later. Mm-hmm. He also partied a lot at the Playboy Mansion in Chicago. He would live there for weeks or months at a time and wrote <laughs> some of his most famous works there. In a spring 2019 Playboy article, fellow cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer described him as a free spirit, a legitimate wild man, and a bad boy who liked to play around. It was estimated in his biography that he slept with hundreds, if not thousands, of women. (gasps) Jeez. His signature outfit was a pirate shirt, tattered leather jacket, and jeans with sandals. And he often carried around a guitar and would serenade Hugh Hefner, and uh, Bill Cosby was hanging around a lot back then, too. 
Um, there's a lot of pictures of him, like with various '60s personalities. Hmm. He was also a very prolific music writer, very in the moment of the 60s and 70s, I would say. His first children's book was published in 1963. It's called Uncle Shelby's Story of Lafcadio, the Lion Who Shot Back. Unlike most children's book characters, Lafcadio the Lion first originated in the pages of Playboy magazine. It is what it sounds like. I read this one. It is a lion who shoots many people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, pretty problematic, Mr. Lion. Which uh, I don't think would make it into a children's book now. <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting, because it, it feels like it was written kind of stream of consciousness, because at a certain point, he just inserts himself into the book as kind of the second or third, like, main character. And he just has this very irreverent sense of humor, like, even more so than most of it is, like, he has, like, these little side conversations with the reader. It's definitely longer than The Giving Tree, but for anyone who's curious about his work, I think that was one of my favorite things that I read preparing for this. It had, like, a children's sense of humor, but there were all these, like, touches that felt very offbeat, and like I said, like, probably wouldn't be allowed in a kid's book now, so it was just, it felt like this very distinct original thing. Cool. Hmm. The following year after Lafcadio was published, he tried to publish another children's book, uh, which was roundly rejected for being too sad. Uh, that was <laughs> The Giving Tree. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so before we go into talking a little bit more about The Giving Tree, um, I just wanted to ask you guys in general, um, what was your history with Shel Silverstein and the books that we're talking about today? I loved Shel Silverstein as a kid. Um Mostly the, actually, I guess only the poetry, I guess, his poetry. I wasn't a huge fan of The Giving Tree as a kid. I think we had a copy, but it wasn't a favorite in our house. Like it wasn't, like it is in some places. Um, but I think we all, we did have his poetry books, or we certainly had them at school, like in elementary school. And um, I, I found at home a few years ago at my parents' house, like notebooks from third, fourth, fifth grade, like school books where I have many, many Shel Silverstein poems like photocopied and glue sticked in <laughs> with then something else that I had to write about it or something. So I remember that being kind of a something that I looked forward to. And I think everybody kind of did. Maybe it was like, if you finished your work, you could go to the poetry corner and like find one mm. of these Shel Silverstein poems and glue it in your book and write about it or something. So um, that's what I kind of remember the most, but I, I was a big fan of the poems when I was a kid, not so much of um, The Giving Tree, or we had a couple other books like The Missing Piece, and I think maybe even I've read that Lion one, but not recently. Well, I remember first hearing about Shel Silverstein from friends of mine in school, uh, which was how I got a lot of author recommendations, which is so just wild to think about now on several levels. It is. And then like, I remember picking up all of Shel Silverstein's books from my school library and cracking them open, mostly based on the cover art and the illustrations. Like I was really drawn into his kind of rudimentary squiggly artistic style. And I remember really enjoying many of his poems in several of his books but I also thought like all of his books were too long <laughs> and I would often find myself enjoying it a lot more if I just, you know, cracked a book and like read one or two of his poems at a time versus trying to read a whole book of his in one sitting. And that's not really how it was for me 
reading any other books from any other authors. Like I would be down to sit down and spend like five or six hours in a stretch, just reading the same book. Um, So I guess what I'm saying is that while I loved reading Shel Silverstein's poems, I also learned from his books, the value of diminishing returns at a very (laughs) young age. And I think I very quickly aged out of reading Shel Silverstein's work, kind of like I aged out of reading Dr. Seuss. And I quickly moved on, like by the time I was in probably fifth or sixth grade, to poetry that was more serious, like Edgar Allan Poe. I really like, (laughs) I didn't ever go fully goth myself like Becky did. But I went spiritually goth, and I really got into Edgar Allan Poe. And I also really got into other comedic poets and short story writers, like Robert Benchley, who was a very prominent 20th century satirical author. So I definitely credit Shel Silverstein with how my love for like writing and poetry developed at a young age, especially in terms of my appreciation for wordplay and silly rhymes and absurd comedy. But I don't really revisit his work now, and I don't think I'd read any of these books since I returned them to the book drop-off at my elementary school library. <laughs> Which was last week. <laughs> uh, no, that was pandemic time, so December 2019. We'll talk about what we think about The Giving Tree now, but similar to you, Alyssa, I also did not like The Giving Tree as a child. And that was one of those books that, like, I'm sure some of my relatives had his poetry books as well, but I know that there was a copy of The Giving Tree at my grandma's house. There was a copy of The Giving <laughs> Tree at, at all my aunt's houses. <laughs> like, that was one of his books that really got the furthest, at least among, like, all my family and extended family. But it really was one that I didn't really particularly enjoy. I definitely did kind of gravitate more toward his poetry. I definitely read Shel Silverstein growing up in elementary school. I think that we would often get like photocopies of his poems to read in class, or we'd go through the book and pick our favorite one if we were doing like a poetry lesson or like a poetry unit. Did you guys have this in like elementary school you'd learn like different types of poems and like Mm -hmm. oh absolutely like a b a b right or like diamond poetry or you know like all these different types and i feel like the shell silverstein books would come up a lot in those units when you said photocopy it it, like brought back to mind like seeing photocopied pages of shell silverstein with like Uh half of someone's handprint (laughs) (laughs) covering up covering up half of the illustration like i didn't i didn't even remember it until you said that but absolutely back yeah the the ones i remember the the works of his i remember most from my childhood um were the giving tree and the homework machine which is what I use as my host most likely. Um, I totally remember, like, I don't know what we did, but that was like a photocopy we definitely got. Maybe we would read it out loud in class or or something, but I remember that one coming up a lot. And maybe it's just because it's like, I mean, so many of his poems are um, topics that are relevant to children, but maybe just the homework one in particular <laughs> mm-hmm. um, st- stood out, or maybe it was just covered the most in different years. But that one stuck with me the most, even though it's very short. So it's not like, you know, super iconic. It's just for some reason that one stuck out the most in my memory. And I remember his illustrations were always kind of unsettling to me. 
<laughs> yeah, I owned the three poetry books as well. And in fact, I'm looking at them right now. Our family's copies of them are how I reread them for this podcast. I don't think we owned a copy of The Giving Tree, but I'm sure that it was read to me, I feel like maybe in first grade, like my first grade teacher did, you know, I feel like that one was more of a teachable book. And like you guys have kind of alluded to not liking it as much. I feel like that's one that parents always like more than the kids. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, we'll get into that. It was interesting. This seemed like a no-brainer to me for a topic to talk about, just because I feel like everyone probably had some experience with Shel Silverstein, at least, you know, during our childhood years. I'm not sure how much kids today would know. But like before this, I mean, I, I would thought of him mostly as like goofy, like rhyming poetry author before I went back to this. And so he like kind of occupied the same shelf in my mind as Raffi. No, <laughs> I get it. The beard. It's the beard. Yeah. <laughs> And so, and and now, I mean, apologies to Shell if he is listening from <laughs> hell or wherever he is. How dare you? Well, you know, I mean, he just doesn't seem like a heaven type of guy. Who are you talking about? He's in goofy 60s stoner heaven. Come on. <laughs> Shell Silverstein? You're, are you saying he's in hell on our podcast <laughs> celebrating him? <laughs> he's looking up at us and listening. <laughs> I mean, he wrote Goodness. the poem about hell. Wherever you are, Shell, you may very well be in heaven. Wow. This is this went to a weird place. <laughs> this is turning into the 700 Club, Chris. Come on. I'm sorry. I should not speculate about afterlives <laughs> of, our, of our topics. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like, just like in my mind, it was like Shel Silverstein poems right next to Opals and Bononos. <laughs> <laughs> and like, those were kind of were the same things to me as I was like thinking about this. And then like rereading these books, you know, and learning more about him. There's obviously a lot more than just like crazy rhymes, but there's a lot of crazy rhymes. It did occur to me how we were all talking about reading Shel Silverstein so much in school that I think he is probably to blame for the fact that most kids think poems have to rhyme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because usually when you like, I think with good reason, teachers would try to get kids into poetry through Shel Silverstein. But when that's like the main, the main poet you're familiar with, then it's really hard to get out of that, you mm-hmm. know, um, idea that poems i remember what you know when teachers start telling you poems don't have to rhyme that just sounds like what yeah you're wrong i really think that's true i hadn't thought of that like again it's like one of those things that in retrospect uh, it makes perfect sense yeah <laughs> i've tried to write like poetry you know like adult poetry and <laughs> not the sort that would appear in playboy magazine necessarily but you know like more mature stuff but like <laughs> i cannot like not rhyme because like it just doesn't sound like anything to me like so it's very ingrained in me that poetry has to rhyme even though i know it doesn't and there are great poets out there who don't but i cannot do it but yeah i mean when i look at just at the covers of these books i just feel kind of warmth and excitement because it was like a time I remember it being kind of like a special thing. Like, I think my mom would read, you know, a few poems like at bedtime or something to me and my sister. So I think it it felt like kind of a treat. And maybe I did read it kind of like Seth was saying that it's better to read like a few poems at a time rather than I don't know that I ever like sat down and read these like cover to cover. But I definitely like had favorite poems in here, like or certain illustrations that would jump out that were my favorite. And like Becky, I think I was also a little like put off by some of the drawings. Like they seemed a little bit 
borderline scary or just kind of gross. They reminded me of the scary stories scary to, tell, stories in to dark, tell in the dark. For some of them. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say. Some of them, yeah. And by way of contrast, it's like I was talking about in this scary stories to tell in the dark episode, that kind of artistic style was always the thing that like drew me in more. Like it would be a thing that would like fascinate me. It wouldn't really like frighten me or scare me or put me off. It felt very subversive, like the drawings um, mm-hmm. in a way that like the poems... I guess are a little bit too, but the drawings, especially like as a child, like they seem, it almost seemed like looking at like something naughty, but it was like something that like your parents kind of approved of. It was this weird, it felt like a passageway kind of book into like growing up and then, and reading more, maybe not adult material, but more, you know, mature material for kids. Yeah. Cause his, illustrations aren't cute mm-hmm. no they're definitely not cute yeah sometimes they're ghoulish in a way and sometimes they're just like there's sometimes there's like naked butts or there's like ugly faces whereas in other children's appropriate books you might read it might be like a happy bunny or you know cute little kids with big eyes mm-hmm. um, and that's definitely not his style yeah and to go back to what we kind of what you talked about before and what I mentioned before too his editor Ursula Nordstrom was really famous for for kind of revolutionizing children's literature. She was, her famous saying is, I want to publish good books for bad children. And, <laughs> oh, and she recognized that. that kids were looking for things that were submersive and mischievous and that didn't, that weren't fluffy bunnies. And um, that said, she did publish Goodnight Moon. She edited Goodnight <laughs> Moon. But <laughs> um, she's like, okay, just this one and right. then the next. <laughs> but it was originally Die Moon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of moving away from those moralistic tales to things that kids actually wanted to read and could relate to and would find, you know, humor and authenticity in that, in the, like the dark, that little bit of edge and darkness to it. Yeah. Again, Alyssa and I are on the same page with transitions because that was like my next thing was just saying that she's the one who at Harper and Row kind of picked this book up and, and celebrated it. And yeah, it was a pioneer in reshaping children's literature. Still, this book, it was under 7,000 copies that they printed to start. So it had modest anticipation. And it obviously became something that we all know that I think most people know. I mean, honestly, like... well. One thing that's interesting, I will just say that I've always been really shocked by is that Shel Silverstein is seems to be, as far as I'm aware, a distinctly American phenomenon. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I went to grad school. I got a master's in the study of children's literature in London. Nobody's heard of Shel Silverstein there. <gasps> And wow, this is like wow. in this National Center for the Research in Children's Literature. What? <laughs> yeah, like he's just not on the radar in the UK. And here in New Zealand, he's not, he is not a household name at all. They did have his books in the library here, but The Giving Tree was in storage. Like <laughs> wow. I had to request it from the library and they got it out of storage for me. Um, wow. And the poetry books also, they had like one copy in the whole Christchurch City Library system. So um, it's really crazy to me that he's such, you know, he's really is like, as you say, I think every person in the U.S. is familiar with him and his work, but not overseas. That's really interesting. I'm glad you pointed that out because I can see kind of why, because there's something that does feel kind of American about yeah. Sort of his style overall. And, and also his point of view, I think. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, like I saw the, I saw the giving tree at target this week, you know, I, it was like prominently displayed, like in the middle 
aisle of like, mm. you know, where you'd put like new books or like favorite books. It's like oh, it's one yeah. of the best selling books of all time. Oh, for sure. And like Becky, I'm sure when you're daughter was born did you receive like multiple copies of the giving tree (laughs) (laughs) i didn't i didn't actually but now i own them because i bought them for this podcast and i was just like well i'm gonna i'm gonna get to them one day with her so yeah we received the giving tree as baby gifts i'm surprised i'm surprised i didn't you'll probably get more people love it or they hate it but a lot of people love it Yeah, so this is also one of the most divisive children's books. (laughs) There are many people, like Alyssa just said, that hate this story and find it to be, like, a sadomasochistic relationship and are, like, offended by it or, you know, taking it too seriously. So I guess, yeah, I mean, that's a good way to just, like, get into it. I think it's funny that this book is controversial. To me, this is, like, very clearly a book for adults. And so it's also, I guess, ironic maybe that it's a best-selling children's book. I mean, it does have, like, some good morals in there. But I think it's, like, a much more subversive book than people understand. And especially after, like, reading a lot of his stuff for, like, more adult audiences and, like, knowing his point of view is, like, the guy that I, like, researched for all the rest of the stuff who wrote for Playboy and wrote these subversive things, like, wouldn't have written this book as earnestly as it seems. So I think it kind of feels like a big joke of a children's book that's like hidden inside a children's book is this actually kind of like very adult story that, I mean, I think it's still like appropriate for children and and can be very instructive. And like some of us kind of said, like it wasn't our favorite as a kid. It was just like, okay, like that's a nice story. But I think the themes of it really only resonate to adults because it's a very mature actual like point of view. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) There we go. (laughs) I think this is a story about codependency and about what happens when people who were never taught to get their needs met in a relationship get together, even when one of them is a man and the other one is a tree. (laughs) Like, I I know this book is so legendary. Again, like, even among people who aren't necessarily fans of Shel Silverstein in general. But I think part of why I never loved it is because it's about a relationship that is literally just take and take and take. But, like, rereading it now, it's also, like, explicitly pro-abandonment in the sense that the tree is perfectly content for this guy to perpetually take whatever he needs from her and then fuck off and completely leave her alone. I like how it's structured. I think it's a perfectly well-structured children's book. But I honestly think it teaches children the wrong lessons about what to expect or deliver in any kind of human relationship, but especially like in the context of like our relationship with nature. And Chris, I I see what you're saying, but I don't know to what extent this is a commentary on that. There are definitely like poems and and books and and works of his that I read in preparation for this, where the the wink and the nod is very clear and it's made very explicit. And Shel Silverstein, as an author, does not shy away from doing the nudge nudge, like wink wink, of like authorial wisdom of implying this is you know this is a commentary on this relationship dynamic that I'm exploring in this story. But this story doesn't feel like a satire or a parody of that. It feels like a kind of just representation of relationships. Becky, what do you think? Because I I have rebuttals, but um, (laughs) I I don't want to get in there too much before we hear what everyone else thinks. Okay. I was prepared to dislike The Giving Tree, reading it as an adult, because I recently read 
like a parody alternate ending that somebody on the internet wrote called the tree who has, who set healthy boundaries. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it's, it starts of when the, when the boy is growing up and saying, Hey, can you, can you make me a house? And the tree is like, no, <laughs> like I gave you some apples, but I'm not built. I'm not, you can't take my trunk to build a house. Like that would hurt me. And the boy like learns a lesson and then they like grow together and they like, I don't know, open a pastry shop great. or something. It's a pretty great <laughs> like, parody. Honestly, they make, like, it's apple really pies funny. together. It's very well done parody. And I thought that was really funny. Like I remember even before we were going to do this podcast, I like put it on Facebook or I shared it with people. So, I bought the book because I felt like I needed to own these books to actually get the experience of like getting the books, even though I was like, I well, whatever, I'll go on Amazon, buy it for five bucks used just so I can like have it in my hands. Don't do that for books that (laughs) you want to support the author. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He's doing okay. I think. Well, his his estate is. is. Down in hell, he's doing fine. (laughs) All those checks are clearing. (laughs) So I started the book and I felt so emotional reading it. I think it's a masterpiece. (laughs) It spoke to me so strongly, uh, not as a morality tale of like, children, this is what you should do. It didn't feel like a children's book to me. As a parent. It felt like it was for the parent. Mm -hmm. Yes. And as a mom, it was like, this is what it feels like to be a parent because I will give so much of myself willingly for my child and her happiness like makes me happy. And, you know, I just, it was so powerful to read it. Honestly, your child gives you so much happiness when they're young and their dependency on you might make you weak and feeble at some point. And maybe you're not that happy, but you are like still happy in a way that they are taken care of and you'll do it no matter what they want from you, you'll give it. And it just captured the reality of that feeling rather than this is you know, how it should be. And it just, it just captured exactly how I feel as a mom (laughs) is that whatever my daughter needs, I'm going to give it to her, even if it like takes something away from me. Um, And I thought that was just incredible, honestly. That's why I think I agree with Becky that this is a masterpiece and that it's, you know, much more geared toward adults. At the same time, (laughs) one of my like first notes was like, is the tree supposed to be a parent? I think that's too simple. (laughs) So... (laughs) That's, I mean, that's why I think it's a masterpiece is it's like this Rorschach test that you can see anything you want to. And there's people Mm. who see it as like a Christian parable. A lot of people, you know, see it as like a parent child thing. To me, it's just about humanity. And I don't think it's saying anything is like good about this relationship, but just that like mankind is constantly wanting something and like taking and like, you can look at it like from an environmental angle, especially, or just like moving through these stages through life. You know, childhood is a simple time when we're happy with what we've got. And that's kind of the beginning. Um, then we're prompted to go to school and get a job. So basically, the first thing we're taught to do as adults is make money, get a summer job, learn your profession, and then you're on your own. And once you do that, you're supposed to settle down and procreate and buy a house. And then you eventually re- retire and start traveling. And in the end, all you want is that simplicity again. And so it moves through these stages of like, he needs money, he needs a house, he needs, I think, a boat, right, that, that mm-hmm, he can travel mm-hmm. in. So it's just like, moving through these stages of life 
I think it's about like the nature of mankind is selfish and just like you can look at it through nature or just anything. It's just like, I need this, I need this, I need this. And and the end of the story, the tree gives, the boy takes, and they both just end up basically expired. <laughs> and so it's this kind of like dark ending, even though it like kind of looks cute and feels maybe a little heartwarming, but it's also like they're both basically dead or about to die. So Well, but one had a lot more taken out of it than the other. <laughs> right. But like I think that's what it's about. Like it's I don't think it's supposed to be like like a good thing but it's just like like this is what mankind does is it just uses and then at the end everything is gone i don't know i mean the last line of the book is and the tree was happy right so if you take that at at face value i think find it hard to read as a in the environmental right from that angle right right (laughs) i mean well hopefully that that's not kind of what how you would want to end but i think that I kind of side most with Becky here. I think that this is really the reason it's such a perennial seller and the reason that people keep giving it to parents is because of the way that it symbolizes parenthood. And I think it's one of those things that as a kid, yeah, like you don't really, like the the boy in the book doesn't really give much thought to the tree at all, maybe until it's very old and dying. But the tree is like happy to give in the book, it seems to be. And if the tree has feelings of abandonment, the reader is putting that in, not the tree itself in the story. So I think it's just something that, yeah, it's not really a children's book at all, but it's something that like kids reading it are kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. That's fine. It's a little bit sad. That's what my, my, when I got it, my son, who's eight, we just read it. He was like, that's a good story, but it's sad. But someone who coming at it from more of like the tree's perspective, the parent's perspective, I can see how Becky, it would make you feel like really emotional and overwhelmed and that it captures something that is so true about parenthood. Yeah. And the there's a part where the tree does say like the tree was happy, but not really. Right. Yeah. And I think that is true because it's not like you can do anything to me and I'm going to be great. I'm sure there's times where I'm a jerk to my mom and she is sad that I won't call her more you know like it even like gave me perspective on what my parents feel like and how I treat them you know Um, I remember when when my daughter was little and I was in this um mom's group with there were like a whole bunch of us with babies and one of them said you know like I can't believe that my mom feels this way about me like the way she felt about her child And Mm -hmm. it gave you this perspective, like, oh, my God, like, this is how my parents feel about me, the way, like, because, like, you love your parents, for sure, but, like, it's not the same as the way you love your child. No. Yeah, I think this book does something interesting by, like, making the tree, like, the character of the tree (laughs) doesn't give you what you expect that tree to feel. And so you're able to project all these things into it. And I feel like there are these hints, like, but the tree was happy, but not really, like, where it's, like, it just feels like there's something, like, dark there, but, like, that it can't be explored. So that's why I almost, like, find, like, the tree was happy, like, that final line. Like, I don't know, I see it as kind of, like, ironic or, like, cloaking how it really feels. Yeah, you could certainly read it either way. Yeah. (laughs) Especially when the illustration is a stump at this point. Right. (laughs) It's no longer actually a, a tree. Yeah. And stumps aren't alive. No, I think... I read it as the tree being happy that the child has come back to them and they'll, they're going to accept them with open arms. I guess like I think of all the times I go back home like once a year and like my mom is so sad to see me go like at the end of my trip and she just wants me to be in her presence. And I have a feeling that's what I'll be like when my daughter isn't, you know, living in my home anymore. Like I'll just, no matter what happens to her out in the world, like I'm going to always accept 
accept her back with open arms, even if she asks me for money or she needs, you know, stuff from me or she only calls me when she needs something. Like I might be sad about that, but I'm still always going to be there for her. Yeah. I, that, I mean, yeah, I think this, there's no obviously like right answer. Like I think the book is just, it leaves everything so open, but yeah, like I, I read it as like the tree is not happy, but you're almost like you're seeing this cause it's about mankind's selfishness. So you're kind of seeing it as a person and like it, it's, it's like hinting that there's like something that the tree feels, but you're, we're not allowed to see it because like mankind doesn't, isn't that empathetic, I guess, toward nature or hmm. something? Hmm. Like, maybe I mean, that's... we didn't we didn't go so much into this part, but I mean, Chris, off of you using the term mankind and not humankind, uh, I also did see something gendered in this story. Mm-hmm. And Alyssa and Becky, off of what both of you have said, I think specifically, this isn't really a story about parenthood. It's specifically a story also about motherhood and also very much motherhood in the Western conception of motherhood, where women and mothers are expected to take on all of the burden and all of the work and all of the emotional toil um, and expect nothing in return. Hmm. And yeah, so like it, it, not to it, not to either like back down from what I've said, but really like to like meet both of y'all with where what you're talking about. Like I the the parenthood theme of it and that emotion of it definitely comes through to me. And I completely, absolutely, Becky, understand how you connected so deeply with it. But it's also like for for kind of my own emotional life and to get a little bit too TMI uh, (laughs) about my own like family upbringing, there was a lack of boundaries um, and there was a lot of codependency and it's, this isn't to knock Shel Silverstein and it's not really to knock this story. Like I don't like hate the story at all, Um, but it is a, a, a portrayal of a relationship model that is inherently dysfunctional and it's toxic and it's deadly to the the female character in this story um you know and it's i get that it doesn't like resonate in that way very strongly with anyone else but it resonated very very strongly emotionally with me in that way I mean, that's just interesting that you took it that way. Like, it's a story that can be seen in different ways. And I think that's a positive Absolutely. Yeah. for it. That I I don't see it as a dysfunctional relationship. I just see it as what it is. Like, mm-hmm. that children will never be as attuned to their parents' needs as the parents are attuned to the children's needs. And that the children go out into the world and start their own lives and parents are just left waiting for the children to return in some way that just feels less dysfunctional and more just the way it is and just what reality is. If I was looking at this from a perspective of a relationship, I would think that it is very dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I think you can too. I think it would be a perfectly valid reading to read this as like, I think there is something gendered and like, it, it would be like men are used to taking a lot from females and, and that women are more willing to give in a lot of these relationships. So that might've been his inspiration for writing this. Yeah. I think that would be another like interpretation. And that's why I like this story. <laughs> it's what I just love about books too. I mean, the way that 
like this, these are just words on a page and we don't know what he intended and it doesn't matter. Like we can all read all these different things into it. And like, we bring our own perspectives and experiences. And the meaning of the story is like that meeting of the words on the page and what we all bring to it. Like how Becky, you got a completely different reading from this now than you did as a kid or like that you thought you were going to have, you know? Absolutely. It's the same words. It's the same exact story. I was shocked, honestly. Like I was blown away. And then I read it to my my daughter and I was like, not crying, but <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm like, let's read this book. And then she said she says things like, There's a heart. Yeah. <laughs> like, like she doesn't know what's going on. And at the end she's like, tree. Tree. <laughs> okay, Sydney. Toes. He's got toes. <laughs> So that will bring us to discuss Shel Silverstein's poems, which are no less controversial, but perhaps a little bit more straightforward in their meaning most of the time. Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage out. She'd scour the pots and scrape the pans, candy the yams and spice the hams, and though her daddy would scream and shout, she simply would not take the garbage out. And so it piled up to the ceilings. Coffee grounds, potato peelings, brown bananas, rotten peas, chunks of sour cottage cheese. It filled the can, it covered the floor, it cracked the window, it blocked the door with bacon rinds and chicken bones. His first collection of poetry was Where the Sidewalk Ends, published in 1974, and then banned from many libraries and schools. It was also released as an audio version in 1983, which won the Grammy for Best Recording for Children. Here's a review from the New York Times upon its release by Sherwin D. Smith. It's a magnificent catalog of garbage that's fun to read aloud and that should delight any youngster who's been collecting those unofficial camp and kindergarten chants on the side. Light verse, especially light verse that slides over into logical nonsense, has to be impeccable. And Shel Silverstein is very sloppy about false rhymes. He's a very facile 20th century man with a sense of where the market is. The result is a sense of derivativeness. Yikes. Wow. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah. You don't expect a biting takedown of Shel Silverstein. (laughs) He's a national treasure. What are you talking about? (laughs) That man is in hell. How dare you? (laughs) Um, And I think it's worth noting something that I discovered about him was that he always believed that written work should be read on paper. And so he was very specific about choosing the type, the size, the shape, the color, and quality of the paper. He's like a paper fanatic. Most of his books were never published in a paperback form because he liked like the presentation of them. And I have to say, it's, it is kind of nice. Like these books always look the same and they are very specific. Like the three, they share a style and they're very distinct. Oh yeah. It was absolutely part of why I like, that was a thing that I looked and reached for on the library shelves. Absolutely. I have to say, I read one of the books on a PDF and the rest like in book form. And I hated reading it as a PDF. <laughs> like it didn't feel right. <laughs> Yeah, it was really nice to have like the physical copies, especially like the ones that I read as a child to like re-experience these because I don't think it would have been the same if I had like tried to look at a digital version or something. And it's interesting that I hadn't realized they were never put out in paperback. But now that I think of it, I've never seen a paperback. And that's actually really nice too, like having it just in hardcover. Yeah. And like the giving tree, like it's it's always looked the same. It's never like had a reprinted cover or anything. Like I'm sure, you know, it's be, been reprinted obviously, and you know maybe there are like slight subtle changes, but it's always like that green color. Like it, it's just very 
recognizable. Whereas, you know, certain other books sometimes go through reprintings or like get a new cover. And Shel Silverstein books always just like, you know what they are and they feel kind of timeless in that way. So he was good at branding. Yeah, it's true. Before. It's true. <laughs> yeah, the original type of branding. So what was your guys' overall impression of reading these three poetry books, coming back to them as an adult? Sure. Um, I loved them. I thought it was so much fun. And I had read, um, I had read them as a kid and then um, read them a little bit as a parent, um, but not too recently, a few years ago. And it was so nice to revisit. And also just to see my kids who are 10 and 8 having these books in the house, they sort of were flicking through and, oh, you've got to listen to this one. Oh, wait, just listen to this one. And um, really enjoying it too. I definitely, as you guys mentioned before, like none of them are really books that you want to, that you sit down and like read in one or two sittings. Like they're better for dipping in and out of and kind of opening up to a random page and seeing what you get. But I thought it was really delightful. And I I thought that so much of the humor was really just smart. And I love the way that the pictures and the text are working together. That like if you read the poem and you didn't see the picture, you wouldn't get what was funny about the poem. And the way that they all just give kids, they give children readers like so much credit and respect and that they'll get the joke Um, and allowing them. And sometimes it takes a second even for for, you know, an adult to get the joke, but then you get it and you're like, oh my gosh, that's so, that's so clever. And, um, and respecting kids enough to know that they'll get it and that they'll be able to do that, I think is really, really well done. Yeah. I remember as a kid, like some of these, like make you feel smarter, I think, or you're like, you like, you feel proud of yourself. You're like, oh, I get it. Cause it's not always like handing it to you. Like you have to kind of do the work in some of these poems to like kind of get the joke or like look around on the page for the illustration to kind of piece together what's funny about the poem. So yeah, I remember even having that sensation as a kid. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the poems, the joke is on the speaker of the poem Mm -hmm. and it makes you as the reader Mm -hmm. feel like superior to the person in the poem, which as a kid can be a really like delicious feeling because you don't get to feel (laughs) that a lot of times, you know, that like, you know, more than especially knowing that like, I know more than like the adult who wrote this poem kind of thing, even though, of course, the adult who wrote the poem planned it that way. Well, right, not just yeah. not just that, but like a lot of the time, the punchline is like all adults all at once. <laughs> it's not <laughs> yes. even it's not even just like shell, silly shell, like taking the piss or whatever. Like it's very often like a specific pointed barb, like at everyone above the age of eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I feel like. This could definitely be edited down pretty much every book. <laughs> I think based on what you were saying earlier, Seth, like... like he's got the red pen Diminishing out. returns. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> like, there's a lot of filler. Um, there's some poems where I'm like, did that have to be in here? <laughs> like, <laughs> but, like, I... and But overall, like, I, I think he has such a fantastic sense of rhythm and pacing poems are so musical and I did not know he was like a songwriter I had no idea before doing any like when Chris sent over like a bunch of the songs he wrote and I was like oh he wrote these and like he wrote Johnny Cash's A Boy Named Sue (laughs) like that's amazing I don't know if any of y'all are Johnny Cash Johnny Cash fans but like my husband is a huge Johnny Cash fan and like that's an iconic song no idea that Shel Silverstein wrote that and now that I know that it makes complete sense Um, and I just think his point of view is so strong they really do feel childlike and from the point of view of children so it's easy to see why these have 
remained um, classic over the years. And also just none of the poems, for the most part, maybe there's a few exceptions, none of them really feel dated in like the last mm-hmm. 50 years. Like it's so easy um, to see why like like we were talking about the giving tree being like in target, but just, I'm sure these books as well are like, you could buy them pretty much in any bookstore um, that like children still have homework and children don't want to go to school and they're insecure. And, you know, they have uh, just the same issues that they did 50 years ago. And he really captured that universal feeling that, um, that kids are still feeling those things today. And it's so relatable still. Yeah. I still really enjoyed reading Shel Silverstein's poetry. I do feel like, especially now, like uh, it's obvious to me that he inspired in his wake a really big sea change in how free children's authors felt to explore like serious, deep, even traumatic and sad aspects of you know human adult life in children's literature. It's really amazing learning about Ursula Nordstrom, like his his publisher and editor. That's really fascinating too. Like that element of of meeting the right people in his professional life to help him kind of do that work that he did. Um, I love how he met kids at their level and didn't talk down to them. Um, But I also love how silly and absurd and even disgusting he would be in kind of making those deep subjects of gravity, like in, into his own work, because that really leavens it in a way. Um, Again, I do find that, like, I find his voice to be so specific and sharp that a, a little goes a long way for me. Um, and I did find, like, the the compilations of poetry to be, you know, probably 30 or 40 pages too long. Um, <laughs> and I thought they all had way too many poems that were the poetic equivalent of peekaboo, where there's really <laughs> only one, like, real verbal trick or punchline so the whole thing that the whole thing is building up to, but it still takes like paragraphs and paragraphs to get to it, or it does it over and over again. Um, but really overall and kind of taken as a whole, it, to me, it's like less uh, diminishing returns than like an embarrassment of riches. Um, Cause again, like thinking, thinking back on it, like in retrospect, he, he really did, uh, impact my my own taste um, and my own like love and fervor for writing and my uh, kind of a perpetual amazement at uh, how much you can get away with in the written word um, and and I also love like Alyssa like you're talking about the the way that he would make himself or like all adult people uh, into the kind of the the punchline of the joke um so yeah it was it was a real treat to like revisit this work and to reflect on how much of it has impacted like the other authors and writers that i've been interested in and how much i love writing myself and how much i appreciate it now so i um i I'm a copy editor and I copy edit a lot of children's books, mostly like for very young kids. Um, and I work with a lot of like unpublished authors, you know, first time authors. And it's so nice to like read somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like some of the people I've worked with just need a little like push in a, in a direction, but so many just, it's just it's just not there and and so 
so much of what I get rhymes and I love working with rhyme because I write, you know, lyrics and love musical theater. So I love doing that. But like the so many of my notes are usually like the cadence is off or like this, the sentence is too long and this one doesn't match. And it was so nice to read some like a professional, like a professional songwriter who like knows that musical feeling and knows how it is to like read something out loud. Cause I think a lot of these are meant to either like be read out loud or just like, it's almost like you're singing it to yourself. Um, and he just, he nails it. Like whether you like the poem or not, it flows perfectly. Yeah. And I think, I think it was Seth who said a lot of them kind of rely on the same format with that one punchline at the end, that turn of the poem at the end, which I noticed too, reading a real lot back to back, like I did to before this, but, um, but he does that so well. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) like it does get tiresome (laughs) when you read a real lot in a row, but on its own, it's just like, he's definitely a master of that form. Yeah, and it's hard to even, like, hate or fault him for it. I knew vaguely that he was a songwriter, but especially this time around, like, actually getting to listen to some of the songs that he wrote that were released, that made so much more sense and also really helped for me characterize why he's so good at rhyme schemes. And it was interesting, um, Chris, one of the things you, you sent out was a link to him reading some of the poems from Where the Sidewalk Ends, I guess from that Grammy award-winning album. Mm-hmm which I had never heard before. And his way of reading them is so different to what I, w- hmm. the way I would read them aloud or in Very. my head. Yeah. It was really fascinating. It was more like almost like a spoken word performance or like a, like a hmm. beat poet type of thing. Like um, it wasn't nearly as like sing songy as they can come across on the page. And he was the narrator for that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Because I loved his narration for it. Like, it actually, the the narration he did elevated it a lot for me. Went for a ride in a flying shoe. Hooray! What fun! It's time we flew. Said Pickle was captain, and Pickle was crew, and Tickle served coffee and mulligan stew as higher and higher and higher they flew. voice is very distinct in a way that like I don't think like I mean a lot of us maybe had like our parents reading this to us and maybe that's kind of the voice that we have in our heads but yeah like I definitely have a shell voice in my head that is not his actual (laughs) voice by any means it's much more it's like more gravelly and sort of screechy and like he does a lot more like kind of crazy inflections than I would expect him to do and crazy rhythms too just reading it like blurring lines together or stopping Mm -hmm. in places you don't expect um it's really cool yeah, like you guys, I noticed a lot of gimmicks and certain ones, like, I would be like, oh, here's another poem with that gimmick. And, you know, I had my favorite gimmicks that he would do, and then, like, these favorite <laughs> gimmicks. <laughs> a lot of the poems, the whole point of the poem is the rhyme, and just it, sometimes it's, like, a, just a really, like, goofy rhyme, and so sometimes it's like, all right, like, 
yes, you like made a crazy rhyme here, but like there's not that much <laughs> substance to it otherwise. But overall, yeah, like I had a really interesting experience revisiting these. And, you know, this is our third book topic that we've done. We did previously Goosebumps and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And I thought that this was going to be such a different topic from those two. Because again, I was still kind of thinking Raffi in my mind or something like that. <laughs> these books have a higher body count than I'm pretty sure either of those other <laughs> ones do. There are so many ones that involve death. I was shocked. They have a higher yeah. body count than like Death Wish and Dirty Harry movies. Right. <laughs> like, there are stacks of bodies in these. <laughs> and he loves a twist ending. Very much the M. Night Shyamalan of poetry. <laughs> And like our last episode was on My Girl. And one of the things that we like noticed about that was like that it was like kind of a kid's movie, but kind of an adult movie. And it felt very much like a kind of a transition movie of like at a very certain time when you're like kind of coming out of a kid and and becoming an adult. And there was also this kind of morbidity in that movie because it took place at a funeral home. And I just really found that like, obviously, like these don't really seem like topics that would go together. But I, I felt like there was some of that My Girl spirit here of this kind of like weird moment when you're becoming an adult able to you know enjoy these poems that are about kind of like sick things and a lot of (laughs) death and and find that like sort of fun but it's also a little bit kind of scary or edgy like you know like you you kind of feel like ooh, like should i be reading this like i remember having that feeling as a kid reading some of this or like looking at you know there's like butts in the in the illustrations (laughs) and it felt almost like i was looking at playboy or something you know like it (laughs) (laughs) just subversive so yeah i guess i just noticed like how good he was at like finding that edge between like childhood and adulthood and really you know honing in on what kids really feel you know like um and chris i I agree and not just like what what kids feel but like what kids don't already know and like what kids are about to learn you know Mm -hmm. and like Again, it's funny, like, I I wrote that down, too, of, like, how much this reminded me of my thoughts and feelings after after watching the My Girl movies. There are these things that we don't really recognize the extent to which they are helpful rites of passage in acclimating us to the experiences and feelings that define being a fully grown human being, um, whether or not we know that those things are coming up when we're kids or not. Um, But, like, helping us to go through these experiences in a way that, yes, it's subversive in one way, but in another essence is also safe and has some boundaries on it. It was very pleasantly surprising, like, reading all of these poems and reading all these books. The way that he did that really throughout his career, in and among the silly stuff, and often at the same time as doing the silly stuff. Yeah, and as we're talking about that these books feel maybe over long or, you know, repetitive in some ways, like there's a messiness to it that I think also actually feels very childlike. Like he's just kind of like putting it out there, like seeing what sticks. I mean, even though it is like the poetry, I think is very precise and probably was like, I'm sure he spent a lot of time on a lot of these poems and maybe they went through a big editing process. I don't know, but it feels very much just like I scrubbed this out and here it is. Like, like Mm -hmm. when you're a kid, that's what you do you don't like edit your own work as a kid really you know you're like here it is we're done this does i feel was a like child every... editor so i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> this feels like every poem he's ever written or in these books <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i kind of just marveled though at how many at how many poems he's written and how many ideas he had for poems and there are like just... a lot of ideas yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
That's the thing. That's why, like, even as I noted how kind of gimmicky they would sometimes feel, it's like, even at the same time, I'm like, oh, wow, he found, like, another way to kind of spool yeah. out that gimmick. <laughs> Damn. Like, it's, I, I have a hard time saying that he missed, <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes, like, I would occasionally see where a poem was going, but a lot of times they would end up, you know, kind of surprising me still, like, even after getting so used to, like, his specific like rhythms and ideas do you guys have a favorite that you'd like to share with the class (laughs) (laughs) show and tell miss teacher i guess this is audio so it's telling keep telling tell and tell (laughs) tell and speak yeah Alyssa, do you want to go first Um, sharing a favorite sure i'll share a favorite this uh this one actually stuck with me from the time i was a kid and it's a short one and it's in falling up And I think I've had this poem memorized from the time I glued a photocopy into a marble composition book on the age of eight or so, but it's called Stupid Pencil Maker. (laughs) 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 Some dummy built this pencil wrong. The eraser's down here where the point belongs and the point's (laughs) at the top. So it's no good to me. It's amazing how stupid some people can be. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I like all those cute ones that are like, oh, there's a punchline. Like, I like those. <laughs> I feel like the ones that surprised me the most were a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Here, I'll read one. It's called Ma and God. God gave us fingers. Ma says, use your fork. God gave us voices. Ma says, don't scream. Ma says, eat broccoli, cereal, and carrots. But God gave us tasties for maple ice cream. God gave us fingers. Ma says, use your hanky. God gave us puddles. Ma says, don't splash. Ma says, be quiet, your father is sleeping, but God gave us garbage can covers to crash. God gave us fingers. Ma says, put your gloves on. God gave us raindrops. Ma says, don't get wet. Ma says, be careful and don't get too near to those strange, lovely dogs that God gave us to pet. God gave us fingers. Ma says, go wash them. But God gave us coal bins and nice, dirty bodies. And I ain't too smart, but there's one thing for certain. Either Ma's wrong or else God is. And I just find that really deep about taking advantage of everything that life gives you and not being like, oh, I can't do that for this reason or this reason. There was another one with the same kind of theme that I hadn't hadn't thought about related that I love too, that I thought was really deep, that I actually made my kids and my husband sit down and listen to when I was reading this. Um, and it's called Lester and it's kind of long, so I won't read the whole thing, but it's about a man named Lester who is given a magic wish by a goblin. Mm, yes. And oh, he yeah. wished for more wishes and he just yep. kept wishing for more wishes. And then um, I'll just read the end of it where it says, um, and then one Thursday night they found him dead with his wishes piled around him. And they counted the lot and found that not a single one was missing, all shiny and new. Here, take a few and think of Lester as you do. In a world of apples and kisses and shoes, he wasted his wishes on wishing. Yeah, that one yeah. really spoke to me, too. I loved that one so much. I really Yeah, did. there's so many of these poems that, like, have these really, like, kind of profound 
life lessons about, you know, kind of like doing what comes naturally to you or seizing the day, you know, things that children would never have the perspective to like write a poem like that. But it's amazing how he was able to distill them into a way that like kid wouldn't understand, you know, like, even though kids have not experienced that like level of like understanding about the world, the way he breaks it down, and especially like, you know, as we're saying that these poems are repetitive, like if you're a kid, and you're reading these like over and over again, like, you know, it helps that those lessons, you know, maybe sink in. And yeah, I I Mm -hmm. think it's so interesting that he's able to, to share such deep things in such a fun way with kids. Yeah, I also just loved that image so much of the idea of being dead surrounded by these shiny new unused wishes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just the the idea of like physicalizing the the concept of a wish. I love that one. I think one of my favorites of all of these was from Where the Sidewalk Ends. It's called Listen to the Mustn'ts, and I'll just read the whole thing cuz it's a short one. Listen to the mustn'ts, child. Listen to the don'ts. Listen to the shouldn'ts, the impossibles, the won'ts. Listen to the never-haves, then listen close to me. Anything can happen, child. Anything can be. And that's like one of the, obviously one of the deeper ones, and it doesn't really rhyme all that intently. But yeah, I remember that was actually a poem that I like did at a speech contest kind of thing that my school did. Um, I did that along with, I think, a couple of other Shel Silverstein poems. I'd like, I had to pair it with other things because it was so brief. <laughs> but yeah, I just always lo- loved the defiance in it and the kind of aspiration of it. Yeah, those are some of the kinds of poems that I really found spoke to me now as well. One of my favorites from Where the Sidewalk Ends is called Invention. And it's another short one, as a lot of these are. I've done it. I've done it. Guess what I've done? Invented a light that plugs into the sun. The sun is bright enough. The bulb is strong enough. But, oh, there's only one thing wrong. The cord ain't long enough. (laughs) And it is kind of one where, like, the drawing helps a lot. Absolutely. Because it's this little kid with a long cord reaching up to the sun, but obviously is, like, way too short to, you know, reach that far. And, yeah, it's, it's just something like that. Like, reading these as an adult reminds me of, like, you plan something so perfectly and you think you've got it. And then there's, like, this really big aspect to that you're like, oh, wait, that's not going to work. It's funny to experience these kind of adult emotions in a way that feels so childlike and that also a child can can relate to that too in, in like a very different scale. I'll read another. Do it. The Little Boy and the Old Man. This is from A Light in the Attic. Said the little boy, sometimes I drop my spoon. Said the little old man, I do that too. The little boy whispered, I wet my pants. I do that too, laughed the little old man. Said the little boy, I often cry. The old man nodded, so do I. But worst of all, said the boy, it seems grown-ups don't pay attention to me. And he felt the warmth of a wrinkled old hand. I know what you mean, said the little old man. Just another one that's just like, just full of emotion. Mm-hmm. It's like 10 lines long and it's just, you, you just feel like it sets such a scene. Yeah, that one reminded me of the giving tree in a lot of ways of... Mm-hmm. different beings that kind of, you know, have this kind of coming together at the end. of It's like the circle of life. Yeah. I have one called Magic that's also from Where the Sidewalk Ends. Sandra seen a leprechaun. Eddie touched a troll. Lori danced with witches once. Charlie found some goblins gold. Donald heard a mermaid sing. Susie spied an elf. But all the magic I have known, I've had to make myself. 
<laughs> yeah, that one's yeah, nice. That was one I noted, and I like that one. Yeah. It's so nice to like hear them said out loud because they really do sound so musical. Yeah, and that one was another one that like just as an adult is like, you know, it, it almost like is kind of like a FOMO, <laughs> a song about FOMO. Of, <laughs> you know, like everyone else is having all these great experiences and it's like there's a lot of <laughs> poems that kind of speak to like finding something within yourself or like a lot of them are kind of metaphors for like disappointment or, you know, not having it as well as like someone else does. But it's like, it's really big on like creating your own kind of magic and which, you know, he was obviously good at cause he created all these poems, but um, that's something I like as a creative person, I kind of relate to a lot of just like having to like kind of make up a fantasy, you know, in order to like escape reality. There was one that I wanted to read that I related to a lot when I was growing up. (laughs) Not so much now. Like, one of the ones I remember the most was called Short Kid, and it's from Falling Up. (laughs) Uh, And it's super short. Here it is. They said I'd grow another foot before I reached the age of 10. It's true. I grew another foot. Guess this is what they meant. And the illustration is the kid has a foot growing out of the top of his head. Oh, (laughs) See, I, I was not expecting the illustrations to be part of the storytelling as much as they are. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, like in this one, like it's, I, I also wanted to read it because it's like literally that's the punchline of the whole poem is looking at the illustration. Right. There are quite a few of those. Yeah, there are a lot of them. They're like throughout this. And I, and I was a short kid growing up. I was always on the smaller side of all of my classmates. And I was like always waiting for these huge growth spurts that like all the male friends of mine had during elementary school. So yeah, like I was a very late bloomer and I'm 5'8 now. But I remember (laughs) this poem sticking out at the time, like, very much to me. (laughs) You just needed a foot growing out of your head, Seth. I just (laughs) needed a foot. That's all I needed. That's all that was missing. Yeah, there's all this, like, body horror in these books. (laughs) There is a lot. (laughs) Almost like David Cronenberg. Cronenbergian. Yeah, like there's all kinds of like body parts in the wrong place falling (laughs) off. Yes, there's a good one in A Light in the Attic called Strange Wind. Yes. Mm. That goes, what a strange wind it was today, whistling and whirling and skirling away, like a worried old woman with so much to say. What a strange wind it was today. What a strange wind it was today, cool and clear from a sky so gray, and my hat stayed on, but my head blew away. What a strange (laughs) wind it was today. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And of course, there's an illustration with it of the person headless with still a hat, like Uh (laughs) where on top of where the head should be. And just I love the way you do like that juxtaposition of like the absolutely ridiculous with just like the ordinary, right? To say Mm -hmm. my hat stayed on, but my head blew away, and then just go back to like what a strange wind, you know? (laughs) Yeah, very nonchalant. Like yeah, often like the body horror is very like oh well, I've you know lost my head. What are you gonna do? Right. One that I know that I liked from my childhood is called For Sale from Where the Sidewalk Ends. Yeah. One sister for sale, one sister for sale, one crying and spying and young sister for sale. <laughs> I'm really not kidding. So who'll start bidding? Do I hear a dollar, a nickel, a penny? Oh, isn't there, isn't there, isn't there any one kid who will buy this old sister for sale, this crying and spying young sister for sale? And I'm glad that I never put my sister up for sale. And she, she wasn't so much crying and spying, but um, I'm sure. <laughs> You're just that, saying that because she listens to this podcast. True. And she'll, <laughs> she'll write a mean review if I, if I say it. But th- that's another one where the illustration is just great because there's like 
this horrible looking boy with his mouth like <laughs> wide open and the little girl is just like sitting at the edge crying and so like i mean when you read the poem it feels like you're on the side of the boy but then when you look at the picture i feel like you get a different story of like you actually feel bad for the sister so it's just like mm-hmm. another way in which the drawings like add so much and like almost tell it in this one like a different story than the poem yeah guys i could just read all of these and i feel like that's too much <laughs> <laughs> i mean the only other the only other one that i wanted to highlight wasn't even a poem it's kind of just a kind of a cartoon that's in the book a light in the attic um, and it's the cartoon of the Union for Children's Rights. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an illustration without any poem. And it's my favorite piece in that book. And it's a cartoon of a strike by the the hypothetical Union for Children's Rights, which is literally a bunch of babies, toddlers, and kids of various ages holding up picket signs of these kids that are like going on strike for longer weekends, shorter school hours, higher allowances, less baths and showers, no Brussels sprouts. <laughs> more root beer and 17 summer vacations a year. (laughs) And I just thought it was such a cute idea and such a cute cartoon. And I also really unironically love the idea of kids organizing together, like organizing amongst themselves and going on strike. And yeah, just kind of like a little bit touched on some of the larger themes that we've been talking about here, but I also just found it really funny. Yeah. And I didn't realize until you just read all the signs in order that it basically is a poem too. And it It is. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) (laughs) There's one called how not to have to dry the dishes from a light in the attic. (laughs) I like that one too. If you have to dry the dishes, such an awful boring chore. If you have to dry the dishes instead of going to the store, if you have to dry the dishes and you drop one on the floor, maybe they won't let you dry the dishes anymore. <laughs> and I think that one, like the cartoon that Seth just pointed out, like there's just like this kind of seditious yeah. angle to these poems that I think is part of the reason why they were sort of controversial and banned at times, that they celebrate kids' bad behavior in a way that like I don't think it... Because they often, like, don't end well for the children who are misbehaving. So I think a lot of them, you know, it's not necessarily, like, instructive to be a bad child. But it's just, like, pointing out, like, kind of, like, all these, like, very human characteristics of children that, like, you would also find in adults, but that aren't usually celebrated or even kind of acknowledged. Because, like, children's entertainment tends to be so, like, be like this. Yeah, well, and for me, what it brings up is so much that like there there's a difference there is a real difference between being a quote unquote bad child and being a disobedient child and i like that so much of shell silverstein's message is about disobeying bullshit authority and like disobeying rules that really shouldn't be in place because it's mm-hmm. like you know people do people do deserve longer weekends people do deserve shorter school hours and work hours and higher allowances um, and <laughs> this is getting <laughs> yeah again other we're, territory we're going into the political minute here i really love that it's not just sedition for sedition's sake it's about questioning and trying to get around and undermine unearned authority you know, and I like that spirit. And, and I love that that suffuses so much of his work in this. I'll wrap up with like one last poem that I like, just because I feel like it actually speaks to him very well. It's called Put Something In. Draw a crazy picture, write a nutty poem, sing a mumble gumble song, whistle through your comb. Do a loony goony dance, cross the kitchen floor, put something silly in the world that ain't been there before. So 
that's exactly what he did. But I think if there's anything that I kind of take away from these books, it's, you know, that he's like really inspiring kids to like be themselves and be unique and and be creative. And I think that that kind of encouragement from him probably like, you know, in some way, like spoke to me as a, you know, developing um, someone who was writing a lot of stories and being creative and just like that it's like, okay, to just like, you know, put your stories out there, like be be original. Yeah, I loved that one. I, I love that in this for the same reason I loved Listen to the Mussins, Chris. That was that was definitely another one of my favorites. So like Becky mentioned earlier, sort of between some of these books, Shel Silverstein was a big songwriter, including A Boy Named Sue. A Boy Named Sue was one of Johnny Cash's biggest hits. It was recorded live in concert from San Quentin State Prison. So another rather adult thing about Shel Silverstein. <laughs> it won the Grammy for Best Male Performance and Best Country Song. So that's another of Shel Silverstein's Grammys. Multi-Grammy winner. Well, my daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much for Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke and it got a lot of laughs from a lots of folks. Seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle and I'd get rid, and some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head. I tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue. In 1972, he wrote many songs for Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, which was another really big chart success, including the song Cover of the Rolling Stone, which I found funny because I really liked that song as a kid. I know I heard it on like the 70s station that we would listen to in the car sometimes. And that's funny. That was one song that I always loved. It's like a really funny song. It's just so unique. Like it jumps out at you. Well, we're big rock singers, we got golden fingers, and we're loved everywhere we go. That sounds like us. We sing about beauty and we sing about truth at $10,000 a show, right? We take all kind of pills to give us all kind of thrills, but the thrill we never know is the thrill that'll get you when you get your picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Now that I know that it's Shel Silverstein, it totally makes sense, but I never made the direct connection as a kid. He wrote a bunch of songs for Dr. Hook across many albums. He also wrote songs for Loretta Lynn. He contributed to Free to Be You and Me in 1972. That was a children's album that was a really huge success and had a lot of like folk kind of songs. I found myself liking the concept of all of Shel Silverstein's songs more than the songs themselves. I love good country songwriting, and I think good country songwriting is about storytelling. But I didn't really think that Shell's country songs were that good. I've always hated A Boy Named Sue. Really? I love Johnny Cash, but I hate that song. Why do you hate the song? Like Chris was saying earlier about The Giving Tree, where like presenting the, the story of The Giving Tree is like, 
not being any kind of commentary, just like showing it like it is. I think what the song is talking about is like a gender dynamic and the way that gender is socially constructed. And it's just kind of like presenting it how it is without ever saying how fucked up and stupid it is. And I think the guy in the song should have just left his shitty deadbeat dad alone and he should have legally changed his name to something that he preferred. <laughs> okay, All it's right. not like, <laughs> it's not a how-to. Uh, but but he didn't have to go like try to murder his dumb dad like i feel like he caused himself a lot of unnecessary pain in his life by just not moving on this was performed at a prison i think it probably spoke to those people (laughs) very well (laughs) and by the way it was his biggest chart on the billboard hot 100 okay and his only top 10 single there interesting wow who knew boy named sue yeah, you can definitely, like, a lot of these really, once you connect the dots, definitely feel like Shel Silverstein stuff. So his poetry collections came out in 74, um, that's where The Sidewalk Ends, 81, A Light in the Attic, and 96, Falling Up. So that was the one that kind of actually came out, like, when we were kids. And obviously between there, he did a lot of other things, including the songwriting. He wrote other children's books, including The Missing Piece and The Missing Piece in the Big O, which I really liked. I read The Missing Piece in the Big O, Chris, on your recommendation. And I really loved that. Like, the allegory of that book is kind of all about the purpose of friendship and the value of having friendships that don't rely on other people to stay the same all the time. And it's also about, like, the value of learning and growing on your own. And I I love how the characters in that are just really extremely simple shapes. And there aren't really any silly names or silly rhetorical flourishes that he needed to, like, make it more interesting or funny i thought that one was a real treat yeah it was one of my favorite things i read too because it was really simple and it starts off at, and i didn't actually read the missing piece the first one but this one you know it's like this you know missing a piece and like halfway through he finds the piece that he thinks fits and it's like oh okay like there's the end of the story but it actually is about him moving on from there like that doesn't actually work out and then he has to like figure it out on his own so it was like this kind of false ending almost of like finding your other half and then like actually once you do that you have to grow on your own before you're really ready to like i guess be in a relationship or any kind of like personal connection yeah that one was a really unexpected joy and i i don't even remember hearing about it before um yeah i was very glad i read that one guys i had no idea he had more books (laughs) like (laughs) i only knew him from the giving tree and not even the falling up book i don't even know if i read that one as a child but just the light in the attic and um, where the sidewalk ends, or yeah, that's. I feel yeah. like those three poetry books were like a trilogy in my in my school's library because, like, I I really do remember like checking out each of those three. But uh, again, a lot of these other ones are kind of new to me. Yeah, I was aware of like the missing piece, but I had not actually read them. I think they kind of got overshadowed maybe by some of these others. And like, especially for kids, I think like missing piece and the big O is a much better story for kids. Um, like the giving tree, like we said, is, you know, more for adults. But I think that one actually is like perfect for both because I really enjoyed it as an adult, but it also feels very like appropriate for kids. He also co-wrote a screenplay with David Mamet in 1988. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah. Uh, for a movie called Things Change, which I don't know anything about. Oh, God. In 1990, he did a one-act modernized version of Hamlet starring Melvin Van Peebles playing all the roles. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean he did that? It's like he updated it. Like he, I, I don't know exactly. 
rewrote Shakespeare. Somehow involved in... Yeah, I don't know. I was unable to find a text of this, but... Wow. All right. <laughs> he continued to write for Playboy for many years. Becky, you mentioned The Devil and Billy Markham. You sent us that, which is a very epic poem about hell. <laughs> about hell. <laughs> Where he currently is. Uh. <laughs> um, and that was adapted into a one-act play as well. This song he was Oscar and Golden Globe nominated for is from Postcards on the Edge. It's called I'm Checking Out, which was performed by Meryl Streep in the movie. It's a good movie. Yeah, it is. Do you guys know um, what song beat it for the Oscar in 1991? 1991, it would have been... It's a song that we covered on the podcast. Yes, would it have been... Beauty and the Beast? Wait, was it the 1991 movies or 1991 Oscars? 90 movies. Oh, is it it Beauty and the Beast? Mm Mm-mm. 1990. Oh, I don't know. Is it something from Troop Beverly Hills? (laughs) No. (laughs) That was 1990. <laughs> cookie time? Did cookie time win an Oscar? <laughs> I'll give you a clue, Becky, and then you'll get it. It was written by Stephen Sondheim. That's who beat him for the Oscar. Oh, it's from Dick Tracy. Yeah, sooner or later. Sooner or later. Yep. Do you want me to sing it right now? You want me to <laughs> no, sing it right no. now, right? Uh, yes, refer back to our Madonna episode for Becky <laughs> singing Dick Tracy. Did you let me sing? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Becky, we'll let you sing as soon as we're done with the episode, okay? I'll cut it okay, right back into right, the show. Okay, thanks. We'll have a special production just for you. (laughs) So, yeah, he was a very prolific guy. He never married, but had two children. Uh, One of them is now a New York City-based singer-songwriter, so somewhat carrying on the tradition of his father. I was wondering if he had children when we were talking about The Giving Tree. I'd be surprised for him to have written that story without having become a parent. (laughs) Yeah. But that was way before he was a parent. Oh, well, there you go. Never mind. Yeah, he had two children, and one of them actually passed away um, at a young age in the 80s. Um, So that's horrifying. He dedicated a light in the attic to her. Um, But yeah, so it sounds like these, like, again, it's a little bit hard to get very much information, but it doesn't sound like these were, like, very traditional. Like, like he wasn't maybe in these kids' lives as much as, like, their mothers were, I get the sense. Mm -hmm. He was a terrible father, and now he's in hell. (laughs) (laughs) The end. Well, I think he was a bit of a, like, you know, a playboy, you know, not to use a pun, but it was like, I think he had a bunch of houses all over the place. So I think he was traveling a lot. And I don't think he was like someone who probably was like a consistent father figure in any way. Yeah, he doesn't exactly strike me as the most domestic type. Yeah. (laughs) He passed away in 1989 of a heart attack. He was 68. But he's had um, several works published since then, um, posthumously, um, including (laughs) one called Runny Babbitt and a reissue of his book, Don't Bump the Glump. (laughs) There's more of his stuff out there. A lot of it's pretty good. Also, even though it's not maybe as widely known as The Giving Tree and the poetry books. There's a lot of shell to, to dig into. And I had a good time like looking into all this and learning so much about him. Yeah, this was fun. I am very glad that I bought the books, um, even if they're not through the right publishers. Sorry, Alyssa. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm glad I bought them. And Sydney's a little too young, I think, but I will be keeping them in her closet um, next to Alyssa's books for when she is a little older so that she can read them. Yeah, I thought this was I thought this was a lot of fun to revisit and then to talk about it um, very critically and thoughtfully with adults. Um, 
Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you were a great guest to have on for this. Yeah, seriously. It was really interesting to get someone who does this for a living's perspective, as (laughs) well as just like, you know, someone who is the same age as we grew up with. So you have like both perspectives. It was really interesting. Alyssa, this was so much fun. We want your books. Where do we get your books? (laughs) (laughs) You can buy my books anywhere that books are sold. Please don't buy used copies, (laughs) but going to the library and don't be Becky. Oh, you can be Becky in every other way. They, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've bought all your books through the appropriate avenues. I did not mean to shame you for your book buying habits. And I am a huge supporter of libraries as well. And I get so many things through the library. All good. Yay. Yeah, you can get my books online in stores or you can check out my website, which is ebweissman.com. We definitely will. Is, is there a goodbye poem that we should read? There is a goodbye poem. When instincts are basic, when attractions are fatal, when Chucky gets hitched or Bruce Willis prenatal, when girls are spice show or golden, ace of base is the sign, xenomorphs are encountered, JTT is online. <laughs> when frogs fall from the heavens, when rabbits are framed, when cats burst into song, when Drew Barrymore is maimed, when dreams are requeemed, when Brits hit once again, we'll be there to blather about how young we were then. <laughs> Requeem. And if we scathe on your fave and you think we're too tough, we don't care. It's our show or it's vengeance for Buffy. So come reminisce with Chris, Becky, and Seth and hear the pop culture you cherish die a slow, painful death. (laughs) What's that you just said? You turned this on by mistake? You're 20? You are young? Right now? For fuck's sake. (laughs) Come right in. Be our guest. Take a seat in our booth and pay us no mind while we drink from your youth. (laughs) Chris, what are you going to do when we do a Dr. Seuss episode? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to repeat this poem because it will be too hard to write another one. So whether our thoughts left you happy or vexed, (laughs) it's time to say what our show will bring next. I'm having a problem where every time I open my fridge, I see a demon portal to another dimension. (laughs) I'm wondering if you guys have any suggestions of what I should do. Should I call someone? (laughs) Chris, I thought we were going to do Jerry Maguire <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? You call Jerry Maguire. That's who you call. <laughs> Chris, I think there's some paranormal investigators. I got to look up the number, but I think they're called the Ghostbusters? The Haunt Bashers. I don't know. <laughs> the Spooky Seekers. <laughs> am, I, am I supposed to think of one? I can't think of one. <laughs> we'll be giving them a call on our next episode. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Please subscribe to us and leave us a review of five stars or more on both Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts so more people see the show. And contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so we can make more episodes. I have been Seth. I'm Alyssa. I'm Becky. And I will not take the garbage out. You better. It smells in here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, boys. Play it sweet for me. I was sitting in my basement. I just rolled myself a taste of something green and gold and glorious to get me through the day. When my friend yells through my transom, grab your coat and get your hat, son. There's a nut town on the corner. I give a dollar bills away. But I sat around a bit and then had another hit and then I rolled myself a bomb. Thought about my mama, looked around, fooled around, played around a while and then.